Good morning. There we go. Uh, last week, I listened to the message online that Pastor Joe preached, and I was sitting at my computer going, whoa, man, he was good. He was intense. I'm so glad you got a chance to hear from my youth pastor, a guy who I dearly love, um, and I was so glad that he was able to come and, and fill in. Well, this Christmas is a little bit different in that um, I have been uh, a pastor now, uh, or on staff here now for 11 years uh, as um, a youth, a young adult, um, skate park guy, um, toilet cleaner, lawn mower, power washer, uh, roof fixer. I mean, probably along with many of you, I've worked alongside doing these random things. Um, and every single year I've preached a Christmas series. And this year I was praying about this. And by the way, I planned Christmas series usually like six months ago. And this, this year we were going through this vision process and I said, you know what? I think the Lord is leading us to preach on vision. And so on Christmas Eve, which is at 6 p.m., don't miss it. It's one hour long. I'll be preaching about Christmas and the birth of the, 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 the Lord into the world. But this week and next week and the week after that, we're talking vision. <laughs> and so as a pastor, you'll have to give me some grace because if you were to try and preach that for however many years, um, whether it's, uh, you know, 11 years, you end up hitting the same story over and over and over and over and over again. And so it's nice as a pastor to be able to just jump right into this. But I wanted to start this morning by giving a little bit of history to you and telling a little bit of my story and, and, and sort of where I've come through this. And so um, in my board interview, when the board interviewed me for the, this position of senior pastor, they said, Pastor Dave, what is your vision for the church? And I sat there with a complete blank stare and said, I have no idea. And then they hired me anyways. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. There was a, I think there was a lot of wisdom and God moving in that period. But in that point in my life, I had been on staff for eight years. And so for me, it was obvious that, that if I was to sum up our vision for that time, it was to make this church a center of the community, to where people would come, and, and, and whether it's meeting a physical, spiritual, or educational need, that they would come, and, and we would have that resource here. We've got nonprofits that we've built up for that. We have different church services so that literally throughout a weekend, you could come here and, I mean, they're not our church services, they're different flavors, they reach different ethnic groups, different um, kinds of communities, but all based on um, Christian holiness uh, doctrine. And, um, and so, but there's all kinds of worship services where people could come to know Jesus here. So uh, at that point, I was, that was it. I mean, I didn't really know anything else. And, um, but I also had this sense of completeness with that. Like, wow, look, it's taken years, but we've done all that. And it's good. And so there's almost a sense of like, well, we need people to maintain that. And we want to maintain that. We've gotten good at that. But what's next? We don't ever want to stay and sit and, and, and just coast on something. There's only one direction you could coast, and that's downhill. We wanted to, to drive forward to the next thing that God was leading us to do. So I had this sense of completeness, but I didn't know where to go next. So the board's question of what is your vision kind of haunted me. And um, like I said, for eight years it had been this certain idea of, of having this community center-based ministry. And I still want that for our church. We're good at that. We do that well, and we're still going to move forward with that, absolutely. But then, I, I, you know, this verse kind of came to mind. It's, it's out of, um, it'll be up on the screen. If you have your Bible, it's, it's out of Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus was talking to um, the, the Jews. He's talking to um, some Pharisees at this point, and they're asking them why they don't fast and all this stuff. Um, and he, he gives a couple analogies. And one of the things he says in Matthew nine seventeen is, Neither do people pour new wineskin into old wineskin. If they do, the skins will burst. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and are preserved. So during that time, the last three years, I'm, we're coming up on year three in January of me being the senior pastor here. And in that time, I had this deep sense of, well, we need to build a new wineskin for whatever it is that God is going to pour into it. Does that make sense? 
And so we started preaching on the kingdom of God. We started building theologically a little bit um, more about where we're going, not even necessarily knowing where God was going to take us yet. We did that entire year on the Sermon of the Mount, which some of you remember as, oh, that was awesome. And some of you remember as, that was a year on the Sermon of the Mount. (laughs) But now we really feel like, you know, as we've gone through this process of the board, we really feel like... um, God is, is leading us into some of this new wine. But I want to talk for a minute more about what Jesus was saying here. What Jesus was saying is that belief in the Messiah is not necessarily going to fit into the old system of Pharisaic religion. Belief in the Messiah needs something brand new, and thus the church was birthed to hold, to contain the belief in the Messiah. But the old system of Jewish religion and strict adherence to every letter of the law just wouldn't cut it anymore. That's sort of what Jesus was saying. But he was saying also that the old system wasn't necessarily going away. The new system is to also preserve the old. And so how do we continue to move forward? And I hope that's what it is with us too, that we preserve this idea of reaching out to our community in such a way that meets physical, spiritual, and educational needs. It's almost like as G- when Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, I tell you, not a letter of the law has passed away. That's almost like what I'm saying here. That's, that's not going anywhere. We need to preserve that. That's very important. That has become our DNA. But there's room for more. There's room to grow. There's room to do more. And so um, what does this look like? So I knew my task over the next three years— um, at this point was, was to build new wineskins so that we could accept whatever God was going to give us. Um, and one of the things I began to do, and this is something that almost every single pastoral leadership book will tell you. Go away, um, go up on the mountaintop, hear from the Lord, and come back and just give it out to people. And so I was saying, God, what do you want me? What is my vision for your people, Lord? What is my vision? And, and I kept asking that question. And so one of the things these other books will tell you is to read a lot of books. And to illustrate this to the board and, and to talk a little bit about, like, you know, this is sort of theologically our foundations and stuff like that. I just brought in a stack of books if they were interested. And the stack was like this high. And I said, over the last three years, I've read this book to sort of discern, or these books to discern where we're going. But one of the first books I read ruined me in the entire process of this. And I had to start over. And this was Life Together by Diedrich Bonhoeffer. I've mentioned this book a lot. Now, Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor during the Second World War in Germany. He was a German guy who um, unfortunately was killed at the end of the war because of his effort in the resistance to Hitler. In fact, he was involved in some of the bombing attempts in Valkyrie and, and, and those things. He was more of an ambassador talking between people. He was sort of a message carrier. And he wrote this little book as he was leading a seminary during this time where Hitler had overtaken the church. He had pushed his men to take the, um, to take the crosses out of the church and replace them with swastika flags. He had changed, Hitler had changed so much that they took the altars, or the Bibles off the altars, and they put copies of Mein Kampf on the altars. Many of us in the West were completely unaware that this was even happening. I mean, there wasn't the internet. No one Instagrammed it. We just, no one hashtagged, Hitler's going crazy over here. Nobody knew because of our lack of communication. I mean, some people knew. There was letters coming out. And so Hitler wrote this in response to Hitler's vision for the church. But when I read it, it almost hit me flat on my face. And it made me fall down, and I read it over and over and over and over again. And it's going to be on the screen. I want to read it to you. God hates visionary dreaming. (laughs) Right there. What? That's not what every single church leadership book says. It makes a dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of, of Christians with his demands, set up on his own law, and judges the brethren of God and himself accordingly. He stands adamant, a living reproach to all others in the circle of brethren, 
he acts as if he is the creator of Christian community, as if it is his dream that binds men together. I read that, I underlined it, I read it again, I read it again, and then I read it again. And I've read it so many times, I've shared it with the board a couple of times, and so it, God rebuked me when I read this. I mean, I went away to read this summer. I literally went away and I brought a stack of books, and, and I just read. And um, I was seeking the Lord, and when I read that, it just hit me. That it's not what is my vision for the church. That's the wrong question. It's what is God's vision for the church? Out of Scripture, what does Scripture tell us that we ought to be doing? Because we could come up with all kinds of fun, fancy things. You know, and also, I, by the way, I think that meeting physical, spiritual, and educational needs, all that, I'm not saying that's not directly out of Scripture, because it absolutely is out of Scripture. So what I wanted to do today is sort of give you the biblical, theological overview and take you on this, like, major journey that I've been on with all of this, and we're going to land at our vision statement that the board has now kind of codified and and developed. We're going to land there. And then the next couple weeks, we're going to talk a little bit about where I believe that the Lord is leading us with this. And so um, today, I just want to simply get into it. If you have your Bible, we're going to Revelation chapter 21, a book of great vision. If you've ever read Revelation, you know that it is a book of contrast, good and evil, God and Satan. You know it's this major book of contrast, where good eventually triumphs evil. And, and so, I, you know, I'm starting on this verse today because I think that it is so key to the understanding of what God is doing all through Scripture. It's almost like the entire theme of the Bible summed up in one verse. That's always convenient when God does that, especially for me, who has to teach every week. So Revelation 21, verse 5, and this is the vision of the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth. And if you've ever read Revelation, you know it ends in this glorious vision uh, of God creating this heaven and earth and it just combining and, and evil and all that stuff disappearing and, and God's people reign. Revelation 21, 5, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. These words, for these words are trustworthy and true. When he says, I make all things new here, what he is saying is the same thing that Jesus said, when, the same word when he talks about new wineskins. This word new is, is in there a couple of different times. And it's that same exact word. And so the question I have when I read this is when? Because Revelation, it could be talking about the uh, big word coming, eschatological future, or, which means a long time now, um, or it could be meaning past tense or present tense. When is God talking about? And I actually called a Greek scholar this week because I, I had looked it up in Greek and I made sure I, I and chances, I, it was cool, as I called him and, and I was right, so my research paid off. So anyways, there's an element of the past and there's an element of the present in this. But there's almost this always like in this verse, in the, the tense that he is using and the way that he uses the Greek, talks about it into the future as well. So it's almost past, present, and future all in this, in this verse. So God is saying, I am making all things new. It's just a part of who God is. It's in God's nature to create. He is creator. And so what he's saying is just as much as I created all of heaven and earth, I am recreating and refashioning this world into my image after it got so messed up with sin. And I want to refashion you. I want to make you new into my image. And so when you read this verse, there's this great sense of anticipation of what God is doing here, that there's this new heaven, there's this new earth, and, and God is beginning something all brand new. It's like God infused something new into the system. That at, at maybe at the point of, uh, of resurrection 2,000 years ago, that was a new event. God infused something new into the system, and, and, and because of that, something's happening here. In fact, there's a lot of New Testament biblical scholars that say what this verse is actually pointing to is the resurrection of Jesus. Because the resurrection of Jesus is actually the beginning point of a new creation. Because he went from death to life. 
Now I want to make that point again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So if you have your Bibles, flip with me there. If you have your iPads, you know, point there. Tap with me there. I don't know the verse we use for that. Okay, well, apparently I didn't mark it off. Yes, I did. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, Paul is making a point to a church who was beginning to disbelieve the resurrection. So a church that was beginning to say, I don't know, is this whole resurrection thing real? Did it really happen? And so Paul makes this point. He says, chapter 15, verse 20, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who had fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Paul is saying something radical happened at the point of resurrection that we cannot miss, we cannot forget about. Something radical happened in Adam because of Adam's sin. All humanity began to die. And because of of Jesus, now all people have a chance to live. So something happened, and it was the resurrection God making all things new in your life and in mine, in the church's life and in the world. God is doing something incredible. What Paul is essentially saying is, because Jesus defeated death, so can you. You can live with God eternally. Almost as if to say, God is taking this world full of broken people and inviting them to himself into the church. And he's inviting these people to be redeemed. And then he's inviting those redeemers to go out and redeem other people. So we have this sense, and by the way, most of you know I always do this. Father, we pray for that first responder. We pray that you would take care of them and whatever accident that they're going to or thing that they need, we just pray you'd be with them. Amen. Um, Always a good thing to remember in the car, by the way. So we see this passage in light of, of the whole biblical narrative that God is doing something brand new, that sin had, has sort of ruined this world, has kind of flawed us, our characters, and who we are. And Jesus came to radically restore all of that. So flip with me to Matthew chapter 11, because there's more to this story. It's not that God wants to do this, like, you know, sitting in his office and saying, you're redeemed, you're redeemed, you're redeemed. God actually has this greater plan. So flip with me to Matthew chapter 11 on this. Jesus has this great conversation with his disciples and with the people around him. Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. And he simply says this. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke Upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We cannot begin to understand the massiveness of this statement until we really dig deep into it. Um, This was no mistake. Um, It's a very intentional thing that Jesus said because it involved rest. If you were a um, Jewish person at this time, the concept that you have of heaven is rest with God. That's the concept you have. Because all the way through the Old Testament, it says, and they will rest with God, or they will enter into his rest. So all throughout the Old Testament, the Jewish understanding is shalom, is peace and Sabbath. That's the Jewish understanding of this. So when Jesus said, come to me all who are weary, I will give you rest, it would have immediately went to the ears of of his Jewish listeners, which was all the people there at the time, and said, come to me and I will give you life with God. I will give you heaven. I will give you eternal life. That's what it sounded like to his first Jewish hearers. And Judaism taught something equally interesting. They taught that you had to be yoked with the Torah, and the measure of your success was how submissive you were to every letter of the law. So the rabbis and the Pharisees at this time said, come to, come to us all who are weary, and we will yoke you with this Torah, with this, with this biblical law, <laughs> and you'll have to follow all of it. How inviting is that, right? And Jesus' call was entirely different. Come to me, all who are weary, all who are burdened, and I will give you true Sabbath. 
rest. Wow. This is huge to his Jewish listeners. And today, one of the other things that we see is, first of all, in, in the Jewish identity, you were yoked with the Torah, with the law, which they saw as alive and active, by the way. That's where the verse um, in, in uh, Hebrews, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Jewish people believe that about the Torah. But what Jesus said was, come to me and we'll be yoked together in this. So there's this deep sense that us as Christians, those who follow Jesus, if you've said yes to Jesus, then there's this deep sense that God actually wants to connect himself with you and walk this road together. In the first century, what they would do is they would take the old oxen and they would yoke them with the young oxen. Because the young oxen would want to go out fast, and they would, they would want to plow that field as fast as they could, and by the end of the day, they'd be pooped, they'd be tired. And this old oxen had this idea of, we need to slow it down and walk in a, in a pace that will allow us to go the distance for the long haul. And what Jesus is saying here is, I am that older, wiser oxen that you will be yoked to, that you will be standing side by side to. And we tend to go into situations with fear. We tend to go into situations with dread. We tend to have anxiety about things. But the knowing that Jesus is yoked side by side, that we have a partner in life, is incredible. You don't have to fear things like rejection because God has already accepted you and wants to walk alongside you. You don't need to be worried about what you wear because he will clothe you. You don't need to be worried about what other people will say because ultimately Jesus loves you and wants to walk side by side with you. You don't have to wonder if you'll make it through this life because Jesus' promise is I am with you and I will help you. You don't even have to fear death because he is the author and the perfecter of life. So when you have Jesus yoked side by side, and we begin to piece this all together, we see that God says, hey, I am making all things new. And then Paul makes this incredible theological statement that says, hey, in Adam they all die, but in Jesus, since he conquered the grave, everybody has the opportunity to live, to enter into eternal life now. And Jesus now saying, on top of that, I want to walk side by side with you through this life. You don't need to go it alone. You don't need to, to be a lone ranger. That just doesn't make sense in the Christian life. And when you walk alongside Jesus long enough, you know what? You begin to look and sound like Jesus. When you walk alongside Jesus long enough, it's almost as if you were made new into his image. In fact, the, when that oxen goes and dies, the older oxen, that younger oxen that's now become old, now goes and trains another oxen. So my point on this is when you're side by side with somebody, you begin to take on their characteristics and their traits and to be, begin to be transformed into their image. This is what Scripture says, 2 Corinthians. Um, flip back over to 2 Corinthians here. Uh, chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 says this, and it will be up on the screens. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Did you catch that? If you're in Christ, the new creation has come. God intends to make you new. The old has gone, the new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I mean, Paul actually calls Christians a new creation, that we are Christ's ambassadors or representatives, that we have this message of reconciliation. And what is this message supposed to do? It's supposed to go and make more new creations. That's what it means to be an ambassador. When you're an ambassador, you speak with the authority of the king. When I was in college, I had this great opportunity, and, and now I wish I could do this all over again, but um, I was on the Model United Nations team, and um, we went to New York, 
And the nations we represented, we got to meet with their permanent representative to the United Nations. So their ambassador to the UN. So the first year I did this team, we were representing the country of Syria. And so I got to meet with Faisal McDad, the, the permanent representative to the UN from Syria. He spoke, now there's things I'd love to ask him, but he spoke with the absolute authority of the Syrian government, Bashar al-Assad. He spoke with the authority of al-Assad because he was empowered to do that. He was given that role, given that title. And what Paul is saying here is, you are Christ's ambassadors. I am giving that to you. So if you've said yes to Jesus, then that is your role. Now, the only way to speak with the authority of the king is to read what the king has to say. Amen? And, and, and be a part of Christian community and hear from God. So we've got to learn things like, how do we hear from God? We've got to learn things like, wow, what does Jesus say about this stuff? We've got to learn things like this because God wants us to speak with his authority. I really feel like the church over the years, not just this church, but the church as a whole, we've lost so much authority to speak the gospel, to speak words of truth. We've just lost that. And partly it's because of biblical illiteracy. And we need to gain that back. We need to grow and understand more of what Scripture says. We need to know so that we can speak with authority from the King. What I think, and I think the challenge here is to believe that what we do here on Sunday morning, what you do at home when you pick up your Bible and you read, what you do whenever you put your headphones on and listen to the scriptures through the Bible app. That's one of the most important times of your day, of your week, and of your month. I think that's one of the most important things that we need to come to grasp of. That is so important because we are hearing the word of the king. We are reading the words of the king and we get to be ambassadors. We have to train ourselves in that. You don't just be, you know, say, oh, I'm an American. I'll go be an ambassador. <laughs> you know, oh, I'll go be an ambassador to, to somebody. I would offend the rest of the world like crazy because I wouldn't know their customs or beliefs. I wouldn't know what they thought. So you need to be trained in order to be an ambassador. So when you come here on Sunday morning, you're equipped for ministry. When you read your Bibles, you're equipped for ministry. When you, when you listen to the Word of God, you're equipped for ministry. To go out into your offices, to go out into your homes, to go out into your families, to go out into your communities, to be the chief redemptive officers. Not alone, but yoked, walking side by side with Jesus Christ with the God of the universe, the same God that created something new and your heart wants to create something new in the heart of another person. God wants, us to, God wants to use us to redeem everything. That's the way I read this. That's the way as I've studied the scriptures, that's sort of the point the, that I've come to. What is the point of all this? Is that God is making all things new that something new happened when Jesus rose from the dead and that he wants you and me to be a part of it. And so what is that supposed to look like? And we know how the world is supposed to respond. Flip with me to, to Romans 8, um, 18 through 21. And I've shared this verse with you guys before because I am so captivated by this verse. I want it to be true more and more in our lives. The Bible says the children, um, the, the world wants the children of God to be revealed. The world wants the church. That's what the Bible says. Uh, flip with me to Romans eight eighteen through 21. It says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will re- be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. What Paul is saying here is that the world is waiting for what, to get a picture of what true forgiveness looks like. The world is waiting to see integrity modeled. You know what our world loves to see? Failure, right? Right? or else there wouldn't be any good news. 
Our world loves to see failure. What if, what if when somebody's wrong, they said, hey, I'm a Christian, and I want you to know that because I'm a Christian, I've got to admit when I'm wrong. And I know this is a major news story. I'm going to get crucified in the press, but I'm wrong. I was wrong. I should have said something. I'm wrong. What does the media do to those kinds of people? We can look at them and go, wow, look at that integrity. But we don't ever see that. I heard this example. What if, what if on the, the, um, the barge that, where they were drilling for oil in the Gulf and there was that giant BP explosion a few years back, they knew four days before that there was a bad gasket. But if they didn't keep drilling, they wouldn't have kept making the money. They wouldn't have kept making the profits. What if one of those guys just said, hey, my conscience will not allow me to continue. I know the consequences of this. I know what can happen. And so I'm going to speak up right now and say we can't do this anymore. We've got to cease all operation. We've got to cease making millions of dollars because we don't want an accident to happen. I mean, the, the review showed that they knew that something was going to happen. What if somebody would have stood up? And what if nothing would have happened? There wouldn't have been an explosion, but that person would have been fired. I think the world longs for the kind of church that would stand up and say, yeah, your, your medical bills this week, we got you. Your, your mortgage this month, yeah, we got you. You were integrous with your life. You revealed Christ to this world. We've got you. I think the world longs for the kind of church that shows true forgiveness and redemption among families and among people, people that admit when they're wrong. I mean, how revolutionary would that be? But we like to hold on to our fortified position, and we don't like to give anything in our families sometimes, or with our friends, or with our staff, or with whatever. We just are, we have to be right. But what would the boss look like that said to his employee, hey, I've been wrong this whole time, would you forgive me? What kind of example would that show? The world longs for this kind of stuff, folks. The world longs for it for, from you or from me. And one of the reasons why the church has lost its power and culture is because the culture doesn't see it. The culture looks at the church and goes, oh, I don't know, the same as everybody else. Why should I go? I long to see a radically different community. And I think that's what God longed for too. And that's what I'm so excited about this morning is that I really believe that the world wants to hear this story. James Cameron is a good example, and I've used him as an example one time before. He's an atheist. In fact, whenever he's given opportunity to speak about religion, he constantly, you know, tries to hammer a nail in the coffin of Christianity and of Jesus's resurrection. In fact, he made a documentary trying to put a nail on the coffin, showing DNA evidence, all this stuff, which he didn't end up showing, of that Jesus was actually buried with a family and all that stuff. But James Cameron doesn't like Christians, but he must love the story of Christianity. Because how is it that you write a story about a young man that goes on a ship destined for disaster, destined for destruction, and saves the life powerfully of a woman, and her life is utterly transformed as a result. How is that possible when you don't like Christians, but you like that story? Or you write a story where um, the, there's these people, the Navi people, and, and these Americans, that, that they, they go um, and they become avatars, which is actually a word for incarnation, hello. The incarnation of Christ, meaning, meaning God becoming flesh. They incarnate into their world, save the population, die for them, and then get raised to life again. The world wants to hear this story. People that made millions of dollars. We've been telling it for 2,000 years. The world loves to hear redemption stories, and we have the one true redemption story. And I think the world just loves this because the world craves forgiveness. The world craves when people speak kindly and gently to others don't you i mean i i see people go wow and they kind of rub their heads like that was different the world craves genuine love the world craves people to give more than they receive the world craves this the world craves true and genuine joy in the midst of disaster the world craves that and what jesus is saying is i want to make this new in you 
I think the world could be totally and utterly captivated by Jesus. But they have to see it lived out in our lives first. They have to see it. In fact, what Romans 8 tells us is that for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Children of God is a major theme in the book of Romans and the book of John. Basically saying, if you said yes to Jesus, you're the children of God. So they're waiting. Creation is waiting for us to be revealed. Creation is waiting for Christians to stand up and say, hey, human trafficking, we got to stop that. Creation is waiting for us to say, hey, simply beating up on others, we got to stop that. Creation is waiting for us to stand up and actually live out our faith. And it might be scary at first. It's going to be scary at first. But you'll be amazed when people go, that was different. That was amazing. Why did you do that? I think the great lie of the enemy is to get us to believe that simply the way we are, the way we were born, is it. And there's no transformation possible. In fact, I think now, more than ever, we live in a world that does not believe that human transformation is possible. But that's what the the world is waiting for, right? Human transformation, true transformation. But we live in this sense of this world where where people say, well, that's just the way you are, and we need to celebrate that. Or, um, you know, better than anything else in in counseling. I remember years and years and years ago, I was was in um, premarital counseling. I was doing it for a young couple, and I was even almost about their age, but one person was really annoyed with the other person, and the other one said, well, that's just the way I am, and that's just the way I was raised. And I said, so you were raised like a jerk? And so you think that's a good thing? So you, every time that you make this person mad, you can just say, oh, I'm just a jerk, right? That, that's okay with you? And they were like, well, okay, I, I, I see your point there, Pastor. <laughs> I have a tendency to tell it like it is in counseling. We tend to celebrate these kinds of things. We tend to say, that's just exactly how I am anyways. Nothing's going to change me. But what Jesus wants to give us something radically different. This is why we keep hearing things all through the Bible, like born again, made new, new creation, conformed to the image, life in the spirit, adopted to sonship, new life. We hear this over and over, and there's a billion more I could give you out of Scripture. We hear it over and over again. So stated bluntly, the vision of this church starts with transformation. It starts with the vision of God. That true transformation is possible. That we actually can look more and more like Jesus. It's possible. That we don't have to live in the gunk and the filth of sin and the brokenness of who we were, that we could actually be somebody else. Not be somebody else, we could be ourselves, but live more like Jesus. Sound more like Jesus. When you walk alongside Jesus for years, you start sounding like Jesus. So stated bluntly, the vision of this church is transformation. If it's just one word, it's transformation. So if somebody says, what's the vision of your church? Say, it's God's vision, it's transformation. But we we built on a little more than that. One of the things I want to show you is transformation stories. And this week we filmed um, Jill Blanchard. Jill uh, was baptized here a couple weeks ago, and we wanted to share with you a little bit more of her story because it's not just... It's never just, oh, I'm baptized and, and now I'm great. There's way more to that story. So we want to share a little bit more with you there. Josh, you have that going? There's a part, I'm also in a small church, senior pastor sometimes is video editor. So any of, any of, you, any of you want to be uh, helping out with that later on, we'd love to have you help out with that because I am not good. And um, so there's parts where it looks like it ends, but it doesn't end. Four minutes. Go ahead, Josh. Can we start it over again, Josh, the volume the power he had in our lives, but on the computer? Hello, my name's Jill Blanchard, and I have been a Christian probably only the last few years. 
Um, I've been going to church my entire life. I was very blessed to have a mother who was a devout believer in God and Jesus Christ and the power he had in our lives. But I was going to a church um, that was very old school that preached at you instead of, you know, taught you what the Bible meant and what Jesus was talking about and what Jesus actually said. Oh, life changed for me very dramatically when I was 14. Um, my older brother and I had gone up to visit some friends up in Portland, Oregon. We lived in Medford, so the southern to the northern ends of Oregon. And um, my girlfriend had an older boyfriend. We ended up going to one of those underage dance clubs that were the rage back in the 80s or wherever it was, 70s, I don't remember. Um, and, you know, they were dancing, and I was cold, so I went out to the car to get my get my sweater and um, I was attacked in the parking lot very brutally it was difficult because people walked by and watched and kept moving and um, next thing I knew I woke up in a hospital I was back in Medford Oregon I had been beaten pretty severely um, been given several wonderful diseases that that you have to tell people about the rest of your life um, and that's hard because you, you feel dirty, you feel tainted, you feel like you're not a pure person any longer. And I was also impregnated, and my parents chose, while I was comatose, to um, take the baby. So that was tough for me because I don't believe in abortion. And um, for a long time, I really thought God would feel that I was, I was a bad person for that. But I've come to realize that that was something that wasn't within my control. I wasn't awake for it. I wasn't the one who, who said, do this. And yet I, I still don't know if, I don't know if I could have done it myself. I don't, I don't think I could have. I think I would have probably had to have the baby. And what if the baby looked like that man I can still see in my face every day? I've always had a lot of guilt for those things that happened back when I was a child, back in my life, um, that God would think I wasn't right, that I wasn't perfect in his eyes. Um, but I, I don't feel that way anymore. This last couple of years, I've come to realize that that's not what I am, and God loves me anyway. God loves me no matter what's happened. He's forgiven me for anything that I may have done. He's, he's forgiven me for for all the sins that I may have committed or that anyone's committed against me. And I've, I've actually even grown to forgive the, the two men that have attacked me in my life. And um, so I feel, I feel very comfortable in that now. I, I don't have guilt for it any longer. And I, maybe that's why it's easier for me to talk about these days. I really don't feel like I became a Christian until maybe just a, a couple, three years ago. And even more so this last year, I've been going through a rough time in my house and, and in my world. And um, now I have a son that's possibly terminal. And it's been very difficult, and God's been where I've, I've gone for solace. And I have a beautiful friend named Marlia Cochran that, that has brought me through that. She's been my spiritual mentor and has started explaining a lot of the Bible to me. And, and one day, she'd been inviting me to come and visit this church that she goes to. And um, one morning I just woke up and I just felt like I needed to hear the message that was going to happen at church that day. And, and I've been coming ever since. And it's, it's been a beautiful part of growing and learning for me um, who Jesus Christ is. And I just completely feel like I have Christ in my heart now. I've been transformed. Thanks for clapping. I know that was really good video editing. So, now I'm kidding. Jill, that just incredible courage to tell that story. Incredible courage. But do you see also, she's not holding on to the guilt anymore. She's not holding on to the shame. She's not holding on to the brokenness. I mean, how many people, how many stories have you heard of physical abuse, rape, impregnation, forced abortion, that people have come out and said, I've forgiven all of those people involved? That's not of this world. That is something radically different. That is Jesus infusing himself into the system. That is different than you ever hear. You hear, if I ever see that person again, I am going to, you know, it's different. And then you hear in that story that 
God used Marlia as a redeemer to bring her to this point. So God wants to use you as a redeemer. God wants to use you in powerful ways. And we're going to continue to hear some more of these stories. And even if you want to share your story, rip out that um, thing in the bulletin and let us know. And we'll be happy to schedule that with you. So as a board and a staff, we looked at the Bible. We sought the Lord. We asked the Lord to reveal what this vision would be in our lives. And we asked the Lord to reveal his heart through Scripture. And here's what we landed on. There's a fill-in-the-blank in your notes because we want you to remember this. It's really important, so it's going to be up on the screen right now. It's transforming lives, families, and communities through the truth, love, and power of Jesus Christ. Transforming lives, families, and communities through the truth, love, and power of Jesus Christ. I mean, I could preach on this for like 10 weeks. There's so much to say here. But just to give you this little brief picture, lives, families, and communities. We see in Acts chapter 1, go to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And this is sort of this idea. It starts with you transforming lives. It doesn't start with, okay, I'm going to run out and, and transform my community. It starts with you being transformed. If we, if we want to grow as a church, we need to be transformed people. Simple as that. If you want to see your family become transformed, then you need to become transformed. And if you want to see transformed communities, then we want to see transformed families first. So we want to be transformed, but not just by any kind of transformation, um, not just an extreme makeover or, or wearing different clothes or anything like that. We want to see truth. John chapter 14, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And that word truth is so important in our culture these days. Because after all, what is truth anymore? And there's so many different ideas of what truth is. And, and our world doesn't trust truth claims anymore. So, so we need to figure out how do we say that this is the truth and, and, and back that up with our lives. Love. God is love. Foundationally, at the very core of God's character is love. And we need to be transformed into people that love deeply. Love people so much that our hearts break when we hear about broken families. Love people so much that, that when we see that person, like the bell, Lindy mentioned the bell ringer, and I just, when she said that, I, I almost chuckled because yesterday was, or a couple days ago, I was exiting a place, and there was one guy that was way more talented than ringing bells. He was playing a uh, trumpet and had the thing on his knees, and he was like a one-man band. It was awesome. Um, but when we see things, the love needs to stir in our hearts so that compassion comes out and the power we almost live, I would, I would say that right now we're on the brink of living in a world that doesn't believe in the supernatural power of God, and that's bad. That's a wrong thing. We cannot have the church not believe in the supernatural power of God. All that we do here is we believe God is supernatural acting in this. And we want to be transformed not out of uh, Gandhi, although he's a very interesting guy to read, not out of Martin Luther King, although he's a very interesting guy to read, not out of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, although he's a very interesting guy to read, but out of Jesus Christ, the one true living God that took on flesh and died and rose again for us. That's how we want to be transformed. So what I want to do right now is I, I want to go all old school on all of you, and we're going to read this together because I want us to get this. This is the board has put their stamp of approval on this. The staff and board worked on this together. We talked about it with some other folks that, that kind of lead other small groups. And so um, we really believe that this is where God is stirring us. So this is this week's theological kind of foundations for where we're going. And the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk a little bit about where that direction is that we believe God is taking us. So also I want to say this. I know holidays are really stressful. A lot of family, a lot of parties, um, Desiree and I have, I mean, Desiree has a party pretty much right after church to go to. But we want to try with every effort to be here every Sunday as much as you can because these are really important moments in the life of our church. So let's read this together. Ready? Begin. Transforming lives, families, and communities through the truth, love, and power of Jesus Christ. And if any of you are really interested in the Oxford comma, talk to John or Rita. Some, there was a big battle over where commas should go. But this is where we believe we're headed. 
And I want to actually invite the band to come up on stage. We're going to take communion in a, in a moment here. There's so many band members, I just want to invite you to come up on stage now so that in hopes that by the time I pray, they'll all be here. By the way, didn't they sound just phenomenal this morning? Wasn't it great? I know. Amen. I got to give Mariah her music stand back too. Maybe you're here and you're holding on to something from the past. Maybe you're here and you're holding on to some brokenness from the past. I don't know what that is. But I want to challenge you today that the vision starts with you. The vision starts with you. It's it. It's just, it's, it's one person. What, what is the vision? It's just transformation. And so I want to challenge you right now. If you feel like, man, I just, I need to be transformed into the image of God. Maybe you're already a Christian. And you're like, man, but I still act like I'm not. I want to challenge you to be transformed. And maybe right now, whether it is you need to come to the altar and pray or get on your knees at your chair or whatever that moment looks like for you, I want to challenge you to pray about that and to ask the Lord to transform you. And then what I want to do right now is I want to pray for this vision. And um, I just want to ask that you would pray with this through me for the future and the direction of our church because I think God is going to do some amazing things in this community. So let's, let's go to the Lord right now in a moment of prayer. Lord, we believe that this is not Dave's vision. This is not the board's vision. This is not the staff's vision. But God, as we read scripture, this is what we're hearing from you that you want us to be redeemers, that you want us to, you want the world to be transformed into your image and that you want to use your truth, your love and your power. You want to use all of that and transform people in the name of Jesus. And God, we want to be all about that. (laughs) But God, some of our hearts need to be softened. Some of our hearts need to be molded. God, there's people here today who simply need to cry out to you saying, Lord, transform me first. May it begin in my home first. May it begin in my heart first. So God, I pray that you would do that in our lives right now. God, that there would be work that would happen because of the Holy Spirit in this moment, in this community, that you would transform hearts right here and right now. God, may some people give their lives over to you in powerful ways. Lord, we give ourselves to you and we ask that you would mold us and use us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you.